I'm Jane Z, and this is Farm to Future, the podcast all about eating better for the planet. There's a reason why I pitch this show as the art and science of eating better for the planet. So often, the conversation around sustainability starts and ends with science. Well, I appreciate numbers and data as much as the next person, but at the end of the day, we're all human. And when it comes to food, we all have distinct tastes and preferences and cultural roots that influence how we eat. So when I found out about this Asian American art exhibit called Home Cooking, happening right in Boston where I'm based, I had to check it out. And I was fortunate enough to get the chance to speak with the exhibit's curator, John Yao. He's a decorated poet and art critic and a Chinese American who grew up around Boston. We talked about some of the food particulars we had in common growing up in Chinese families, from fighting over who got the fish eyes to eating strange parts of the animal like chicken feet, which I'm personally not a fan of, and the fact that American cooking often disguises its food. As you're listening, I want you to think about what foods remind you of home. Can you think of some traditional foods you grew up with that are naturally sustainable? Maybe it's using all parts of the animal, or cooking with indigenous varieties of, say, corn or rice, or maybe it's preserving and pickling techniques that don't involve a fridge. Let that marinate a bit. Now, if you're in Boston or have the chance to come here in the next week, the home cooking exhibit is on until this Sunday, December 5th. It is an absolute delight to see these paintings and sculptures up close in person. The exhibit is located in the Sowa Arts District at the newly opened Lysan Keen Gallery. So it's definitely worth a day trip out. Beyond this exhibit, you can check out the other galleries right in the building or head down the street to the ateliers for some artisanal Christmas shopping. I'll be posting photos and videos of some of the works we talk about on Instagram, so be sure to follow along at farm.2.future. Also, we had a few small audio glitches in this recording, so there's a few spots where I voice over what John is saying. All right, let's dig in. My father's father is Chinese, but his mother was English, and he was born in New York after they sailed from England, but he grew up in China. So then they came to America mm -hmm. in 1949 because my father had an American passport. And so you grew up in Boston, is that right? Around Beacon Hill, till about the sixth grade, and then my uh, parents moved to Brookline, Mass. We okay. grew up, you know, near the public gardens in the Boston Commons, so we would walk to Chinatown from Charles mm -hmm. Street, where I lived, through the combat zone, it was as it was then known to Chinatown to eat and my father and mother were always a little bit uptight because I was like six and they were dragging me to these like seedy bar zone. <laughs> I have strong memories of that. I mean they're not, they're pleasant memories. I didn't know that it was a seedy bar zone. I just thought it was a weird place with bars with lots of lights and strange people walking around. I was six. I was not cognizant of you know, what was going on. I was only right. aware that we were on our way to eat out somewhere, and that was what I was looking forward to. My mother was a terrible cook, so going to a Chinese restaurant was pretty great because my mother seemed to only know about three dishes. <laughs> right, <laughs> the chicken, cabbage, and rice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> was that sort of a weekly thing? 
Yeah, I would say every Saturday or Sunday we would go, and we would also shop in Chinatown. My mother mm. liked to, they would like to get their chicken fresh. So you went yeah. to a certain Chinese butcher, you picked out the chicken you wanted, and they took it in the back room and brought you the package of food. Right. And of course, they, my mother wanted everything, the neck, you know, all the parts of the chicken, because whatever you got, you were going to eat. And that's something I learned pretty early as a child that you, that my mother wanted the whole animal. I learned to eat chicken feet fairly young, things like that. So fast forwarding a few decades, as you were putting together this home cooking exhibit, what were some of the stories and experiences you were thinking about? And why was this important to put together a food themed exhibit featuring Asian American artists? in this moment. So Lei Sun Keen, the dealer, asked me if I would do a show and I, I wasn't sure what the show would be and then she's Asian from Australia, I believe. Then mm. I thought I should do a show of Asian American artists and then I was thinking, what's the theme gonna be of this show? I was writing about Jiha Moons ceramics and Stephanie Shi, and then I was thinking about that they both had food as a subject or sauces in Stephanie's case and Jiha Moon was dumplings one's Japanese and one's Chinese and I thought oh Asian food all the Asians that I know and I live three blocks from Koreatown all the Asians I know have a whole particular set of food substance you know food that they eat and then I thought home cooking that would be the show and I knew three artists were in the show but I also then thought I don't know if other Asian American artists that I've written about have dealt with that subject so I started talking to them on the phone and emailing them and they all wanted to do it so then they started telling me stories about where their work came from uh, Ying Lee who's the oldest artist who came, she was trained in China, learned socialist realism, came to America probably in her 30s, went back to school, learned how to paint all over again. And she painted uh, dragon fruit and watermelon, were two of the subjects. And she told me that just before her family was split apart in the Cultural Revolution, and they were sent for re-education. She was also sent to a separate place from her parents. Uh, her mother bought a watermelon, which mm. is very rare, and she and her sister split it. So that's a big moment in her life. And then mm. she comes to America, she's in South Carolina, and um, her boyfriend goes to the supermarket while she's painting, he's a jazz musician, and he buys like six dragon fruit and she was completely freaked out because she saw a picture of Mao eating a dragon fruit and it was very very rare that you could even get one so then there's also the issue of uh, abundance in America versus for Ying Li scarcity and here John Yao is talking about artist Lily Wong who hadn't done a food painting before. I mean, when I asked her, she was a grad student at Hunter, 
and I saw our paintings and I said, oh, I'm putting together a show uh, about food. Would you like to be in it? But you have to do a subject on food. She said, okay. And then I didn't see the painting till I, till I saw it in the show. And it has to do with eating the whole fish, right? Fish eyes. For her, it was fish eyes. But for me, it was also fish eyes and fish cheeks. Like the cheek is considered the most delicious part of the fish. And again, if my parents did buy a fish, there's only two fish cheeks and there's three of us. There's only <laughs> two fish eyes. And so there's it. a whole little discussion as to whether I, the eldest son, should get the fish cheek mm. or not. And then who would my mother or father get the other one? There'd be a little discussion every dinner that a fish appeared. And this was really like something. So I get to, I got to learn about food and like different parts of the animal and what you really want to eat. And the fish cheeks brings you good luck and things like mm. that. Very superstitious. Yes. So you know Chinese can be. So that was all part of my growing up. So she did the fish dish. I thought it was wonderful. I instantly knew what it was about. And then I mentioned this, actually, it was funny, I mentioned this to someone, a Chinese person I knew in Houston, and they said, also the fish collar was really delicious. And mm. I thought, oh yeah, my parents never talked about that, but that is true. And then with the Tammy Wynn, she surprised me, because she had never done a food painting either. So she did the one with all the ducks hanging, which I thought, okay, I know that view. I've been in Chinatown a lot of times. You pass the window with all the ducks hanging. But then she did the one about someone eating a bat, which is, mm. uh, you know, the, the COVID-19, the whole beginning is, oh, the, it started because somebody ate bat in a right. Chinese wet market in Wuhan. And it was called the Wuhan virus in the beginning. And mm. there's the whole thing. And there's all these kind of bad stories about what Chinese people would eat because they're so desperate they would eat something like a bat or this or that. And it's a kind of, I felt it was a kind of racist way of looking at the Chinese. And mm -hmm. so I was really happy that she did the bat painting. That one a, really, I mean, it, it almost feels chaotic the way that the person's just so gratuitously eating the bat. Right, and you feel like they're ravenous. I mean, that yeah. the person eating it is cramming it in their mouth. There's something kind of you feel like this person is just ravenous and desperate. Mm -hmm. And I think she's really commenting on something. I yeah. think it's a beautiful painting. Yeah, I, I got a chance to go see the exhibit in person. And I have to say, seeing them in real life was, was really something else. Um, especially Yang Li's paintings, just right. seeing all the layers of paint of the dragon fruit and the, you almost get a sense of the texture of the dragon fruit skin and the right. watermelon rind. But right. also this, at face value, you might see the colors and, you know, it looks abstract, but you do see the colors of the fruit. Right. It almost looks like a a rage painting or, or something that just embodies a, a lot of very strong emotions. Yeah, exactly. Campus. And then you figure that she, learning socialist realism, never got to use paint like that. Right. She, like, reinvents herself, basically. And I think that's mm. really amazing that she was well-trained, taught, and then comes to America and really rethinks painting completely. 
I mean, I think mm. that's really kind of a testament to her. And that's something that really could only happen with her personal history and then coming to America and bringing that perspective. What you just said around this idea of abundance, you know, I think that's something that a lot of people growing up or living in America just don't even see because, right. you know, you go to the grocery store, there's always an abundance of fruits and vegetables and options all year round. And right. this is just something that we've gotten used to. One thing around COVID is, you know, with supply chains getting disrupted, I think more and more people are waking up to the fact that maybe this abundance shouldn't be taken for granted. And maybe right. we don't need to be eating certain things or we need to appreciate the whole of the animal and things like that and that's where i think this reframing is really important of sustainable eating or farm to table doesn't necessarily have to look a certain way you know i think we need to be looking at different cultures and different types of food to maybe get creative with our food sources well i think i, I thought about this a lot too because I was in Wuhan in 2019 and I met a young Chinese woman who's a poet and she um, studied in Iowa at the translation program and then I said to her oh what did you eat in, uh, in Iowa I mean it was curious and then she said oh I didn't eat any American food I only went to a Chinese restaurant and it was on the highway and I had to ride my bicycle there no matter what the weather was. Okay. And I was really kind of, okay. I said, why didn't you eat American food? And this woman said, Americans like to disguise their food and I want to know what I'm eating. And that was it. She had, she had <laughs> no desire to eat any American food, nothing. And then she just stuck to that for the whole year. She was in Iowa and then we were eating in a Chinese restaurant. I thought, I understand what she's getting at, looking at the dishes that were being brought out. That you saw everything that you were eating. That struck me. It's kind of a deep memory. It happened three years ago when I had this conversation. I've kind of thought about it ever since. Like, what do people do to their food to mm. present it? What she said to me comes back as I'm eating something. Like, am I eating something disguised or not disguised? You know? Right, right. And there's a lot to that disguise, too. I was just hearing on a, another podcast, farmer Joel Salatin was saying, when you get a hamburger patty, you could have meat from like 600 different cows within one patty just because right. of the industrial process. Right. Um, but when you get a dish that's where you can clearly see the animal, you know, it's clearly a whole, like you can see the parts of the animal. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess in a way, even though I didn't know it, when I met her, I was more in agreement with her kind of unconsciously. And then she kind of brought it to the forefront of my consciousness like what are you eating and make sure you know what it is you know mm -hmm. so and i like to cook so that's mm -hmm. another thing do you cook a variety of things or do you tend to go for i kind of i read cookbooks and then i find something that i find interesting and i then decide to cook it and then i kind of cook it till i get sick of it and then i move on to something else so I mean, you can get too into cooking. I think the other kind of impetus to the show was uh, during when the pandemic was happening and everything was shut down. Uh, you know, a lot of people I saw on Facebook 
were showing how these elaborate meals they were making and I was mm. sort of like I like a kind of simple meal I don't want to spend hours and hours she spent five hours cooking and 30 minutes eating it does the, the, the <laughs> thing seems a little you can cook five hours something in a pot where you don't have to look at it a lot right there's other these dishes seem like very elaborate and I thought oh I actually probably don't like elaborate meals I like kind of simple dishes mm -hmm. so that that struck me and I thought oh I'm I'm not posting any meal I make on Facebook <laughs> forget it all. So that was one thing. And then the other, I think, so there's a woman, a writer I know, Suki Kim, a wonderful uh, novelist and also investigative reporter for The New Yorker. And she lives in New York, and we hadn't seen each other in many years, and then we met again. And she told me she spent eight months in her apartment only listening to Korean music, watching Korean TV, listening to Korean news, uh, reading Korean newspapers, and eating Korean food that she had the, all the ingredients delivered. And then after eight months, she left her house and freaked out because she was in New York City. <laughs> I was like, oh man, I would freak out too. So there's also this thing about food and language being your home, right? And that food is the kind of easiest way to recreate your some kind of feeling of your culture that I think is important. I remember one of the first times my family went out to eat at a sit-down Western restaurant. My parents didn't really know how to read the menu. They were right. like, what? What is filet mignon? What is like, what are all these things? And right. it comes back to that point around language and, and disguising food as something else. and. You know, it, it also wasn't family style like we weren't used to. And so we we're like, oh, okay, so everyone needs to order their own thing. But of course, we all end up ordering different things and sharing. Sharing it, right, right. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't understand the kind of you only get this dish and you don't get to try everything else. No. Exactly. I'd love to hear about some of the food history that you came across when you were researching oh well uh, that's something i'm really interested in is the kind of cultural collisions that happen with food so one of the things i discovered was that tempura was invented by the dutch now there's two different stories as to why the dutch invented one was they wanted to eat fresh vegetables during lent so mm. that they invented tempura. And then the other is that they didn't want to eat pickled vegetables and that's why they invented tempura. So there's two kind of different stories. Now the Dutch had a little trading post off the coast of Japan, the Japan up. So that was the way they got stuff from the West and also traded with the West was through the Dutch trading company. So that's mm -hmm. how tempura enters into Japan and becomes oh. part of their culture. So oh. that I found interesting. And then wow. fortune cookies in America were a Japanese thing from Buddhist temples, Japanese Buddhist temples. And then a Chinese restaurant in San Francisco starts to adopt it. They change it. I think it's sesame flour, it's slightly salty, and they change it to adapt for Western taste. 
Westerners like something sweet at the end of their meal. So again, it's a kind of curious thing of how these certain foods come to exist and that they didn't originate in that culture, they originated in the other culture. And then the other thing I read, which I'm really curious about, I've never been to Korea, is that they have more different ways of frying chicken than any other culture. And they have the different coatings. And one of them that I read about was, I think, it's like Doritos, you know, Doritos, they crunch it up and, and, and roll chicken in that and fry it. <laughs> My child, who's wow. uh, 20, went to Korea when they were 18, said that they really are like more different kinds of flavors than they had ever imagined possible. I feel like you can't go wrong with fried chicken and Doritos. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> there are things I want to try to eat, you know, maybe once. I had crickets when I was in Houston in a Mexican <laughs> restaurant. It was the second time I've had crickets. The first time was in a Filipino restaurant in Santa Monica. So I thought, oh, I have to have crickets again. So I can tell the difference, but I couldn't really tell the difference. What did it taste like? Crunchy. Okay. They just come on a bowl, they're crunchy. You can kind of see that they're crickets. You know, the, what can you do to a cricket to disguise it? I mean, you just see the cricket. <laughs> I was happy. I was fine with it. I think some people get upset that they get to look at what they're eating, but I actually am very happy with that. And then yeah, I had it. octopus. I guess you're not supposed to eat that, but they brought the whole tentacle. They didn't cut it up in, in one restaurant, and I liked oh, wow. that, too. Hmm. And then goat. I had steamed goat. So I did try three things in uh, Houston that I don't usually get to eat, or I don't wow. usually eat every day or something. And steamed goat was delicious, and that was Vietnamese. It had perilla leaves in it. And then I was thinking about, like, the kinds of spices or the kinds of vegetables you put in it are really specific to a particular culture. And somehow that's also, like, carries with it a certain flavor. And so I was very happy. It was a Vietnamese restaurant off the highway, an English woman teacher Sally Conley and her husband Brian brought me there they discovered it kind of by accident there was not a single person there that wasn't Vietnamese except for us so then I knew we were in a really good place and then when they ordered Sally ordered the goat the woman knew who it was that she owned the restaurant came out and said oh you haven't been here in a long time I want to say hello <laughs> So that was wonderful. It was a kind of family friendship thing. And I, I like that kind of eating. It's like kind of local eating, not a chain, not, you know, all those kinds of packaged foods that come in a chain. Where you know the chef. I, right, I exactly. Have... You know, I don't, I don't eat out a lot. There's a kind of culture of eating out in New York, but I'm not necessarily a member of that culture. I like the fact there's so many different things you can eat in New York. I'm not complaining. It is a great city for that. Definitely got the options. Yeah. So switching gears a little bit, I, I do want to hear your thoughts on kind of the, the current moment in art where 
in popular culture, you see finally this rise of Asian voices and faces in media, you know, in, in films and stories. I guess, where do you see that? I don't want to call it a trend. It sort of is a trend, but where do you see this kind of movement going? And are you seeing a, a surgence of Asian American artists in the art world? Uh, so I've been writing about art since 1978. When I first started reviewing art, there was one Asian American artist named David Diao who jokingly said to me in a bar one day, I don't know if New York is big enough for two Asian American artists. <laughs> one of us should leave town. I mean, he was kind of joking, but he wasn't. And also, during that period, so this is in the late 70s through the mid 80s, you would be amazed at how many people called me David when they, they saw me on the street. <laughs> they couldn't distinguish between David Diao and I. It was really unnerving and huh. kind of depressing and creepy. Now I feel like in the last five to eight years, more and more Asian American artists are beginning to show both in New York and elsewhere. And I'm very interested in this. I've tried to write about as many of them whose work I like. It went years seeing only maybe one or Martin Wong in the 80s. The art world only can focus on one Asian American at a time, it seems, mm. maybe two. So I think that's changed. And I think more people are trying to kind of open up American culture. They realize that there's been a kind of white avant-garde situation that's dominated the art world for years and years. MoMA is trying to change the way they display their art. I think America is going through two things. It kind of one group wants to close it up and one group wants to open it up. And I think that's the tension and we'll see what happens. I don't think it'll be a trend. I think it'll actually install itself and be a kind of more open situation for more different kinds of artists. I think it has to open up even more than it already has. But you feel like for a long time, America only knew that there was black artists and white artists. Now they realize that there's more than that. I'm happy to be in this moment and see this change. There were moments when I didn't think it was going to happen and I was like, uh, so, so I am happy about it. As you were coming up as a poet and as an art critic, did you feel like you had to assimilate your writing, your writing style or your opinions in a certain way? Or did you feel like you could write openly and kind of include the heritage and cultural perspective you bring? Oh, I think I learned to become more and more open in time. I think in the beginning, I really tried to work in the way art magazines wanted me to work. And I didn't bring that up as a subject. But then in 88, I changed a lot because I wrote about a painting by Wilfredo Lam, who was uh, Chinese and Afro-Cuban. Hmm. And he was always seen as a kind of minor artist following in the footsteps of um, Picasso. He did a painting called The Jungle on paper, and they kind of dismissed it like it wasn't even on canvas. Ignoring the fact that the painting was done in Cuba during World War II and all canvas was used to pack sugar to ship to the war. So he couldn't have gotten canvas if he wanted to. And then the other thing is that MoMA presented him twice. The first time in 77 they said 
He was the first uh, surrealist to use ethnic sources. He's basically using his own sources, so it's not ethnic. It's like right. biographical, because yeah. his grandmother was a Yoruba priestess, and he knew all the stuff about African religions. And then the second thing they said was later, in 84, they said he was a Western intellectual, which I read as code for he was a white guy. Because, I mean, why, why do you have to say, you know, he's an intellectual, why do you have to kind of define it that way? And again, they kind of denied his thing. So anyway, I wrote the article, and MoMA's response was to take the painting down the morning the article came out and put it in the wow. basement, oh, which my is God. really indefensible. They didn't want to have a discussion. The way they acknowledged my essay was to act as if it I was writing about a painting that wasn't in the collection. That kind of gave me a lot of power in my head, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, I know that if I identify something, I'm going to get a response. It might not be the response I want, but I'm going to get one. And I decided to make sure I did that. You can't invent the issue, but if it's there, it's there. And so I did, I wrote about things like that a number of times. That's powerful. When was that? The, the that moment? was 88 that I wrote the article for Arts Magazine. And uh, I remember the editor, Barry Swapsky, calling me up and saying, do you know what happened? And I'm like, no, what happened? He said, they've taken the painting down. Someone must have been in the museum and called them because they, he was the editor of the article and it had just come out. And they basically, the response was to take the painting down. But the other thing that happened, which I also think is interesting, is the art world never said anything about it. It was like it didn't happen to the rest of the art world. It only happened, I knew it happened, Barry knew it happened, people who were Asian knew it happened, people who were black knew it happened, people who cared about what Fredo Lam knew it happened. But basically the rest of the art world ignored it. Now if that happened, don't think the art would ignore it, right? Yeah. It, would, it would show a kind of white reaction to that. Yeah. So you feel like that's what's changed in the art world. Man, I wonder what happened to that artist's career. Oh, no, he was dead. But I mean, oh, now, okay. oh, now it's interesting. So he had a big re retrospective in Paris. My article was reprinted in the catalog. It was reprinted in Brazil in an anthology. It's been translated into lots of different languages. And now Pace Gallery, a big New York gallery, is showing where Fredo Lomp. And I read the press release and I was like, ah, they totally changed the way they're writing about them. And I know mm. I had something to do with that, even if they mm. never say a word about it. That he's now being seen as an ethnic Cuban African Chinese artists responding to African gods and, right. and symbols, and that he wasn't appropriating it. He was basically using it because he was familiar with it. They, mm -hmm. This is the first time I've ever seen him written about like that in all the years I've known his work. I mean, that goes to show, too, the long tail of the impact that your writing can have. You know, maybe in 88, there was no response, but a couple decades later, 
that the world's evolved and, and that message is finally being Right. Accepted. I mean, it's a long story. You can't really expect the world to change because you have said something. You have to have faith that what you've done will contribute to some change in the mm-hmm. end. Really important conversation. For, for anyone listening to the podcast, are there any resources or places that you would recommend people go to support Asian American artists? Well, I think just to go to shows with them in it and kind of sign the guest book. And uh, if you have a little money, buy work by a young artist. It's not that expensive. Their works in my show at the Lays on Keen are as cheap as $200. Mm. Others that are seven hundred dollars. Why not? And, and some part of the money is going to go into Chinatown and a cultural center there. So mm. the the way the show's organized, some part of the profit goes into the community of Chinatown. So you're going to be doing two things at once if you buy a work. Think mm. of that. Isn't that great? <laughs> two for one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I had a great time talking to you. I'm happy that that these artists will get a little more attention. I mean, they clearly put so much, not just time and effort, but heart into their work. And it's amazing that that you're able to put this beautiful exhibit together in the heart of Boston, too, of all places. We'll definitely link information about the exhibit in the show notes. If listeners are interested in learning more about your work, where can they find you? I'm on Amazon, and I have a I don't have a website. I'm on Instagram as John Yao Poet. I'm on Facebook. So those are kind of the ways you'd find out about me. Amazon's the nice way. You can buy all my books. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you so much, John, for joining the show. This was wonderful to have you and have you share some of your stories. Oh, thank you. You take care. And that's a wrap. Hope you take a moment this week to appreciate some of the traditional foods in your culture, and I will talk to you next Tuesday.